Welcome to Dramas with a Side of Kimchi, the fangirl party every drama fan wants to join. Grab your kimchi and face masks and let's chat Asian dramas. I'm Drama Geek and Carrie the Mockney is also on this episode. This is part two of our cozy chat with my liberation notes. We just talked way too long last week and we had to add our thoughts to a second week. Hope you enjoy. So we're going to talk now about um, Chang-Ki and... Mr. Goo's Rolls Royce. <laughs> <laughs> what did we think? Oh, and then Chang-Ki had his own life and it was interesting. We also will discuss what we thought of his country friends and his friendship slash romance with his sister's friend whose husband was sick. And that was... Chong-Ki's story is one of those that kind of grew on me uh-huh. because he talked so much and he would talk about, you know, he would have these metaphors to explain how he felt, yeah. but like one of them was poop related. I'm like, okay, we're going to skip that one. <laughs> they even brought it back at the very end. I know. Like, you go buy you a latte so you could have diarrhea. <laughs> it's like, like uh. not right now. <laughs> yeah. But once, and you know, his rants, they seemed kind of it kind of felt like he was picking on his sisters at the beginning, but then again, he's standing in line waiting for the ATM. They do that a couple of times too. Mm-hmm. And he was being impatient with the guy in front of him, but then he suppressed his irritation and actually helped the guy when he fumbled something. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and I was kind of proud of myself in that moment. And that was the rant that I was like, okay, now I can hang with you because you're doing better. You're actually looking to be better instead of giving into your irritation and everybody else needs to bow to you. Mm-hmm. And so then when Mr. When he found out that Mr. Goo had a Rolls Royce, which is the one car he's dreamed about driving for his whole life. And just the fact that he was practically vibrating. (laughs) And then he jump hugs Mr. Goo in the garage. It it was hilarious. And yet his love for that car was fantastic. Yeah. It just, it it showed a pure innocent side to him that his rants didn't necessarily reveal. I feel like um, you started coming around to his character when he started showing how self-aware he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's the, the times that you can be around somebody and you can hear them and the conversations that they have and then, and think, you know, them. And then all of a sudden you've, you know, five months into your relationship, they say something and you're like, oh, you actually are aware of the fact that you talk just as much as the person that you're complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And everybody acknowledged that the other girl talked a lot and was super entitled and just was, you know, just everybody that didn't want to work with her and complained about her had a good reason to, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, and he, on the flip side, you, you got to see pretty early on that he would also sit on the phone and just listen to his, he, they, he was the manager of a bunch of different convenience stores. And so he would have certain um, owners of the store that would just call and talk to him forever. And so he would just sit and the, the person that he complained about, like would never have done any of that. Um, but I also loved how once he was able to drive the Rolls Royce, it showed about his character in where he, he didn't just go and like race really fast with it or really test it out or like joy ride. He, he would drive it to like different locations and just sit there and, and sit in his little chair next to it and like, enjoy the fact that he, and that was a big thing about, again, the difference between living in the country and living in and living in Seoul or being from Seoul. Um, and the, the, the dad, they had always owned a truck for his sink, um, uh, 
sinks and cupboards, I think is what it was. Mm-hmm. Cabinets. Yeah. Yeah. Cabinets. There we, that's the right word. So cabinets and stuff. And so they had this truck so that they could load it, but it only has two seats and they have a family of five and he bugged his dad about getting a car um, pretty early on. And that was one of that, like, he's so whiny towards his dad in some of the earlier scenes. And you're just like, oh my gosh, leave the dad alone. And then later on, as you kind of keep progressing and toward the end, after the mother dies, they buy a car, they go to the beach. It's one of the most touching family scenes Mm -hmm. um, that they have in, in there, in the show. Um, but it, they have never been to the beach together, at least after the the youngest was born. And that was one of the reasons I decided not to have a third child. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to change the type of car I drove. (laughs) Oh, There are many, many, many other reasons. And part of it was not being able to stay home longer to, uh, to, to watch my children and having to put them in daycare so early anyway, Mm -hmm. but, um, once you get that third child having to like, try to drive around and have, you know, being able to take them places, but the car represented something else to him beyond just being a cool car. You know what I mean? Like a car in general of like, just being able to get in it and go wherever you want to go and, and take the trip. And that's kind of what he did once he got the Rolls Royce. One of my favorite scenes, which I think we have a, a um, favorite scenes, recap at the the end, but if we kind of sprinkle them in here, we don't really have to, to do that as much is the Rolls Royce scene where he, and he didn't do it. Somebody like hit him in a parking lot and left. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this incorporates the friends. So the, the, he's had this accident. They cannot find out who did it because there's no CCTV footage to prove who did it. So they can't get it fixed and it's not his car. So he has to tell the owner of the car (laughs) (laughs) what happened. And his friend is just like looking at it. I, I, I loved him when he was with his friends and some of the conversations they had around their little fire and at their little, like not popular restaurant or whatever it was that they would mm-hmm. always, yeah. The coffee shop that never didn't have any fresh coffee, it's like, <laughs> but their relationship, um, I, the, some of their conversations and stuff, uh, were some of the most re- revealing about his character. So I really liked his friends. And so the friend is like, you're just going to have to tell him, you have to tell him you have to show him. So he stays by the car the brother goes, Chung, he goes back and tell, brings Mr. Mr. Goo to, and show him what happened to the car. And it's just the best, one of the most hilarious scenes is he's just standing there staring at him for the longest time. And then all of a sudden there's this, a switch in his eyes. And then Chung, he starts taking off running and he's like, Oh no, he's going to beat me up. <laughs> I mean, they kind of have an idea of why Mr. Goo, who's living out in, in the, the country right now has this Rolls Royce where he might've gotten his money. So I'm sure there are plenty of things running through his head of like, oh my gosh, he's gonna, he's gonna beat me up like a gangster would beat me up or whatever. <laughs> he's just running, running, running. And they show them running for so long and the friend riding on his little scooter, <laughs> giving them water. <laughs> marathon and they're all just running and running and it's just oh my gosh it's so hilarious one of my favorite scenes but it also ends up leading to one of the most contemplative thought-provoking scenes of them both getting on the train and heading to Seoul and taking different paths once they get there so we'll get 
to some of that stuff later, but like, um, his friendships with those guys, I, and they kept coming back to it. And one of the last scenes where he, they all, the siblings come back and the friend is doing, having his little, uh, elementary school troops behind him. And he tells them to welcome them and then turn around and head off. Like, oh my gosh, that was like, I was a little bit teared up because again, they, they all move away and he's Mm -hmm. still there with, you know, doing his, his, his country high school. I don't, it was a high school or I think probably middle school or uh, Mm -hmm. elementary, whatever. I can't, I don't even know what teach kind of teacher he was. He was something, was it sports sports? Yeah. Some, some of those sports. So yeah, his, his friends brought in, they were also could have been viewed as annoying. And some of them were a little bit in the beginning and at times, but they were a very grounding, um, had a very grounding effect for him. And they weren't because like the older sister's friends, when she would go out them, they would just look like, when is this night going to be over? Whereas his friends, when he would go back and they would all sit and talk and everything, they all equally and you know equally enjoyed each other's company and it was just very fun camaraderie between all of them oh 100 they were his support and like they connected really well they'd known each other for all of their lives and they connected and they understood him like he felt i mean he expressed himself to anyone and everyone who would listen <laughs> but they would respond in kind like they would yeah. go with him on whatever little mental journal journey he was going on yeah yeah. And so, and oh my gosh, that chase with Mr. Goo cracked me <laughs> up so much. Remember a scene that, cause they went on some, ta- he went on some tangent and it was very philosophical, but it was also odd, but I can't remember what it was about. His <laughs> friends were just like, okay, I'm going with you there. It was, oh, it was when he was explaining to them about being in line at the teller, I think. Oh, that one. The, the whole, like he was t- telling them about that, or maybe it was when he was talking about the car and his feelings, but I don't know. It was one of those. It was a deep con by the time you got to the end, you were like, okay, they went on that journey with you and only they could have gone on that journey. <laughs> right. The end. You needed a serious foundation for but, that one. But like it made sense, but I can't even remember exactly what it was about now. But he was using metaphors and all sorts of stuff. And then when he got to the end, you were like, okay, I get it. I I get what you're saying. <laughs> <But> <laughs> All right, so we cannot neglect Mr. Goo because he's been in the country all this time and he's all mysterious and stuff. But honestly, this whole drama is kind of, it's his story in a way for how much he's so quiet in the beginning. Mm. It really becomes about him and his journey. And I don't think it's his journey with alcoholism because that doesn't change at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does in a little bit. A, a tiny bit. And I, I, I think that the writer really was trying to show a, a realistic, um, what it's like for somebody who is an alcoholic and how little changes, like little changes don't really seem to make a whole lot of difference and, and how much of a struggle and everything. And so th- if that's what they were going for, they definitely nailed it, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, and that's where, if you get too invested in his character arc and if he's going to change and he's going to turn his life around and all that kind of stuff, then you will definitely be disappointed. Um, by the end, maybe, I mean, you might have, there's a little hope, but there's just as much hope I think as you get, if you find out that somebody in your life is like going to start going to seek counseling, it's just the beginning and you hope that it'll stick, you know, type of thing. So yeah, his, his story, I, I feel like it was, they did such a good job of, of making it the families 
story and then also his story. So I don't think you can't definitely can't say it's just his story because the family was very much the center of it as well. So it's both intertwined with and how they how the family affected his life mm-hmm. and then, or how they didn't really change his life type thing. So, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. That's an interesting con- contrast yeah. too, because we get so much, like you said before, we get the full picture of them and everything that's going on with him, them. Right. And then he kind of, he comes and he goes just like he does in the country. He kind of comes and goes, and then he's more solid towards the end when he catches up with me Jong again. Yeah. And so, but okay. He's both at like, the, some of the lowest points that we've seen him <clears throat> when he comes back to her again, but then also maybe at the point where he's finally going to be ready to move on as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So we should probably backtrack a little bit and yeah. talk about the contrast between his soul life and his country life. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So how it shows up differently for him and then the, the whole Jindos as a metaphor for his life because the question you put there was, was the roles a cage for him? And that was exactly what I was thinking when he got back in his roles and went back to Seoul permanently. I was just like, oh, it's a cage. He's going back to this horrible life and it's yeah. a cage. So, well, and the Jindos, when he's leaving, they're being caged up as well. Mm-hmm. And like the shelter that he'd provided yeah. had gotten knocked down. Yep. Yeah. No, they, they, the, that right there was a pretty in your face, like, representation and the the writer and director used the seasons throughout the drama as of and I mean she talks about it like like that's how she's like okay worship me and when we get done with winter when we get to the on the other side of winter maybe we'll be different people mm-hmm. and that was her hope and then he leaves before he's able to spend winter there with her and goes back to his old life and there's this definite just like the soul and country there's that feeling of summer and winter, like when his outfits and how light and, and airy they were. And I mean, no, he wasn't free of his alcoholism when he lived in there, but he seeing the contrast of how much he drank when he was in Seoul versus how mm-hmm. much he drank when he was there. He's like, okay, he actually was much better in the country. He at least kept himself sober for when he was working with wood and saws and <laughs> <laughs> those important things. Yeah. Um, well, and sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. And so I also noticed, cause he, when he goes back to Seoul, I think he goes to visit and then he goes back permanently. And when he goes to visit, he's talking to one of his friends and he's like, I even speak differently in the country. It's slower. It's more deliberate. And then you get to see that in Seoul, he is a different, he's almost livelier, but also more depressed. If that makes sense. He talks more. Yeah. He smiles more when he's in Seoul, but yeah. at the same time, life is definitely dragging him down because he's more prone to violence. He's more, I mean, he takes a shot with every transaction he makes with the club owners. Cause he's, yeah. he's kind of in the hierarchy of like a club owner CEO, but it all looks very mafia. Yeah. He's the one that goes and, and makes sure that they turn in the money that they owe to the main boss. Like mm-hmm. they get their earnings and they give it to the main boss and he comes and collects and keeps them in line. So yep. he's definitely like the muscle in the line of, of like who's in charge and that kind of thing. And yep. so he takes that shot and it's a, it's a tall shot. It's not a tiny shot. It's a really, oh, tall, no. it looks like it's like whiskey. He's taking a shot of like whiskey every time that he gets a translate. And then he pulls out his flask every time. 
he's in between. So he's drinking in between. He's taking shots when he gets there. And then you get to his house. Good Lord. You thought there was a lot of bottles in his country house. (laughs) No, there was just a few. There's just a few. Once you get to his apartment, you're like, oh my. Um, Yeah. So his, his life in the country and even the clothing, because, you know, he's got heavy coats on, his hair is, is different, he's grown mm-hmm. it out, and it's more, it's parted, and it's it's neater. So, again, the Rolls Royce and all of that, he looks more put together as far as, like, his clothes and what he's driving and all of that, but he's completely a mess. He is not put together at all, and he's mm-hmm. just stumbling through every second of his day when he is in Seoul, when he goes back. Yep. And it's interesting too. I'm just thinking about the bottles because yeah. when he was in the country, he only drank the soju. So in the distinctive green bottles. Right. And he just kept them in his spare room. And like, there was that one scene where Chong, he goes into his house and like, there's this green light coming from the spare room because it's the sunlight coming through the window and hitting the bottles Yeah, because he's collected that many bottles. Like it's yeah. mind numbing how many, but then in his soul apartment, which is more closed off, less windows, yeah. The bottles just start in the entryway. Yeah. And right. they're just there and haphazard. They're not tidy. He doesn't hide them from anybody because nobody comes to see him. Exactly. He just goes home, stumbles into his house and just starts drinking from them, you know, because again, he, he says he starts drinking from the moment he wakes up until the moment he goes to sleep. So he's always got something there with him. So, yep. Yeah, he his character, because again, he still remains somewhat mysterious by the end because you're like, how did he does drop a little bit of information that he starts in that lifestyle as a host. Mm -hmm. So he starts as a host and then finds that he's not good at it because he doesn't like people and he doesn't like listening to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not. Yeah, he moves over into where he doesn't really have to talk to people that much. He just gets to enforce, you know, he's the enforcement or whatever. And so, but other than that, how does he Olympic jump? (laughs) (laughs) Where did he learn that? And where was that part of like, did up to a certain point, was he like in middle school, did he have parents and they were alive and he was doing good and he was involved in like higher level sports and then they died and he ended up having to work at a bar. Like, (laughs) I really, that's one of the things like you don't get to know exactly how he ended up in the life that he did. Like, how did he Olympic jump? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do know from the fighting that he does in the ending episodes that he's very physically capable. Yeah. He, he handled himself against what, like three or four people at the same time who were out to kill him. Yeah. And, and, and he, he do it in a way that's real. It's not like 20 people are after him and he punches and knocks everybody down. It's, it, it's more just realistic of like, he's a good fighter, but then when you put a bunch of people against him, he's not, he's not going to walk away without some cuts and bruises and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But my, but the, but what impressed me was if he's capable of that and he was very aware of his surroundings while his, he was fighting yeah. and going back to that long jump scene in the beginning, it makes sense that he's probably capable of that. Cause you guaranteed he's either chased someone or run from someone more than once in his soul life and so he can judge distances and jumping like that because how many times have we seen people running rooftops in Seoul? I was gonna say maybe he had to jump a rooftop and that's where he got the skill (laughs) that's when he knew he could do it maybe I don't he was so sure of himself and the way he was planting his feet it really looked like an athlete Mm -hmm. versus somebody who's just street smart and knew that he could jump over a building I don't know maybe maybe both We'll never know. Exactly. 
<clears throat> so did the mom's death surprise us? And what are our feelings on how her death changed each of the characters current situation? Um, the way the story was told about the mom's death was actually pretty brilliant. Um, Cause goo goes back after he's been sloshing his way through life for the last <laughs> couple of months. I mean, they, they do enough of the scenes from his point of view where it's all cameras unsteady and all of that, even during the fight scenes, mm-hmm. you know, they show how pretty much out of it he was, but so he, he, he misses her. He's lonely. He misses well, her. And it's been a couple of years because they, they show her in 2018, 2019, like there's a happy new year or something. And then it jumps to 2022. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a while, um, but a little bit after he left, um, and they've gone back and shown uh, some, they go back. So he goes out, goes back and knocks on their door. A different woman answers the door. It's not their mom. And then he, uh, the dad walks out looking much older, hair shorter, um, and, t- and tells him no, sh- soon after you left, she passed away. And then we get flashback scenes um, leading up to her her death and everything. And then how the kids handled it, how they end it. Cause they all have moved to Seoul now. And yeah, it's definitely, I think it's two years, um, or at least a year and a half or something. Cause I think he leaves before winter in 2019. And then we're right at the beginning of the new year of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, so we skip the, <laughs> we skip the <laughs> pandemic or the, the conveniently <laughs> we skip the worst part of that, but, <clears throat> um, so yeah, the, but the mom, I didn't expect it. it. Like, it did not seem like the kind of story that that's where, what we were telling and where we were headed, but then it also made sense in how it changed each of the characters situation and like how they responded and reacted to it. And we got to see through flashbacks of like, um, that, the, that, you know, they could, they walk you through how she was found and what day it happened and all that kind of stuff. And, um, so yeah, I wasn't surprised, but they're even going back to some of the directorial like clues of like the last time they show her laying down, um, and then they go to the future or whatever. And then you kind of see them coming back. You're like, oh, okay. There was some foreshadowing a little bit that something bad was going to happen to her that day, but I wasn't in that frame of mind. So I wasn't, I was so confused. I even messaged you. I was like, I'm really confused. Why is this woman answering the door? (laughs) Yeah. I was like saying, I have no idea. So yeah, I was definitely surprised. Oh yeah, I was too. And like she would kept complaining about being overworked and overworked and all she does is cook all day, you know, and that probably actually should have been a hint. Yeah. Because didn't she die of a heart attack? They they just say she died in her sleep. Yeah. And they actually said that other members of her family had died that way. So right. I, I don't know exactly what they didn't pinpoint exactly what caused it. They just said she died in her sleep. So yeah. And so it just obviously it caught her by surprise and everyone else. Yeah. And it just like kind of leading up to it. Now that I think back on it, I see the hints, but in the moment, yeah, it was a definite surprise, but I feel like her death kind of released them in a way. Yeah. Even though she wasn't necessarily the one advocating for the kids to come out to the country. Like it felt like she was the more liberal parent when it came to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Cause they were always turning to their dad to ask for permission for anything. Right. But he didn't change until she died. Yeah. So I I wouldn't say she was the glue. It was just that she wanted her children with her. And so I think in a way her, I don't know. I don't want to say her love was holding them back. It's just that they didn't see life 
outside of what their current situation right with her around and she wasn't necessarily pushing them I mean she wanted to meet like her on her last day she wanted to meet um the older sister's crush at that point yeah because they you know she'd been hearing about him but hadn't known what he looked like or anything and so and she of course she's kind of agrees to go spy in the cafe and then she can't help herself and she buys their meal and she's just really sweet and cute with him even though she promised her her daughter that she would not get involved and not show her face right (laughs) and so it's almost like she gave the final stamp of approval for that relationship and then her work was done yeah yeah, it was it was one of those uh, her goose, Mr. Goose uh, story arc is pretty um, tragic, in my opinion. And then also hers was just very sad in that she worked really hard. She married somebody who both farmed and, you know, did manual labor type of thing. And so she and she says towards the end, she's saying, like, I married you and all I ever do is work, 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 work. And mm-hmm. I'm tired all the time. And, and she didn't like they didn't show a lot of scenes between her and her husband that felt like they had like that. I was like, Oh, look at their relationship. Look how much they love each other. Mm-hmm. It was realistic of like that. They, they, they've raised children. Their lives are about the, the wife's, you know, the mom's life is about the child. They're her children. And, and they're constantly just going through the motions of like, let's keep our, our farm and all that stuff going. And of course they've talked so many, you know, they talk a lot about like part of the families downfall isn't the right word, but some of the trajectory of their, their family, and maybe some of where the happiness kind of was seeped out was the dad loaned money to his, Mm. to, 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 you know, rescue her from something and cause them to just not have a lot of extra money. And that's probably where a lot of the kids like feeling responsible for staying there, helping them survive in, contributing their money and their efforts into, cause you know, the, the two of them just doing all the farm work by themselves would have been pretty hard, you know, and they eventually sell it off, but because they just can't do it anymore. But that's, I think part of the, the responsibility that the kids felt towards their parents of why they stayed and everything. And that once she passed away, um, then there were, then, you know, the farm is sold off the dad's, you know, being taken, he does get remarried. So he's being taken care of by this other person. And then they're like, okay, yeah, I don't feel the need or the responsibility to live there anymore. The funny thing is, is they move together all together into an apartment and they're the mundaneness of their life (laughs) enter and exit. Like the, the director spends a lot of time on people opening and closing doors, (laughs) (laughs) but it adds to the, the rhythm of their life and the rhythm of the show. And there's a rhythm that they pick back up when they move into an apartment in Seoul. So Mm -hmm. they always kept complaining about how their lives would be different if they lived in Seoul. But when they moved to Seoul, did that part of their life, like their home life, how they lived, did that really change that much? And I don't think that it did. And I think their director did a really good job of showing in just a few little scenes of seeing them at home again. It's like, yeah, they're kind of stuck in that same rhythm of their life, but um, we already know that this is a really long podcast. So we're either gonna have to break it up or we're gonna have to edit some. We'll see. But so, um, I think, did I introduce the last one? Yeah, I did. So you get to introduce this one. All right. And I would, I did just want to add that with them living together, they uh-huh. kind of fell into the roles they had because that's what they'd always done. And yeah. I can understand that because if you know what to do, if, 
if you know what to expect and what to do, it's easy to keep that role going, even in a new situation, like it brings a sort of comfort. And so I wonder if it's a comfortable way for them to be, you know, after their passing of their mom. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that there was necessarily anything wrong with that rhythm that they re that they established once they moved. I just thought it was an interesting, like thoughtful thing of like, Mm -hmm. was it living in the country or was it the rhythm of their family you know, cause again, they, they, they definitely took up that feeling once they moved into an apartment in Seoul. So yes, the country never quite leaves them. Yeah. Cause what does that kid say at the end of the series? You have to be three generations before you're considered from Seoul. Exactly. Yeah. And they brought the country with them yeah. anyway. All right. So <laughs> me, Jong, the youngest says she lives her life trying to find five happy five minutes of happiness every day. And that's how she survives. And do we think that's enough in life? And it was interesting the way she put it, because it's like, if I hold a door for a child, that's five seconds. You know, if I appreciate the sun on my face, that's another seven seconds, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's little things. And I think honestly, if you're just trying to find anything to be happy about finding those little things every day can lead towards a more positive mindset. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think that's actually a psychological coping method. Like something a therapist would give, because if you find the little things that make you happy, instead of dwelling on the things that make you unhappy, Mm -hmm. it can change your mindset and what you're focused on. And it can bring about more positivity and positivity obviously increases not only mental health, but physical health. And so, and it just, it increases your love for self with me. Jong says at the end that she feels lovable. And I think just her trend towards positivity and towards finding those five minutes of happiness in those little seconds by seconds um, transactions in a way changed her. Yeah. I, and I think that uh, those, five se- those five minutes a day coupled with some of the decisions that she made and then Mr. Gu eventually made, because it's one thing to keep living within the hell that you're living in. And I'm more referring to Mr. Goo versus Mm -hmm. her. She, yeah, she wasn't not necessarily happy with her life, but I wouldn't kind of frame it that way, but he really was living that way. And once she kind of gave him that idea or thought, then once he focused on what is making me happy, when am I able to smile or whatever? And, and is it when I'm, you know, drunk all the time, or is it like, the, the, the daily tasks that I'm doing or any of that kind of stuff, it kind of gave him of like a a frame of reference of what to look forward to and maybe what he wanted more of in his life, you know, what would make him feel better. And I think with her, she recognizing those five minutes a day, then being able to go, okay, well, I mean, she didn't choose to quit the card company and move to a different company. She was pretty much not her contract wasn't renewed and she was fired because they believed Mm -hmm. (laughs) her boss and his person he was having an affair with, but, um, that she was able to then get more joy out of life and extend those five minutes. Like, I feel like you could tell when she went to lunch with her coworkers or when she was sitting at her desk or, you know, in the, in the different times that we saw her, she didn't just have five minutes a day of happiness by the time we see her at the end, but starting off and just counting the seconds really helped her get to a new place of like being able to have longer than, than those five minutes a day. So I felt, I felt, I do feel like it's a very good, um, thing to implement within your life. 
And it, it made me sit back and think of like, okay, so how can I not concentrate on the negative and then find the positive within each day? Cause sometimes it is hard, especially if you're going through like Mr. Goo of like having to deal with an addiction or having to deal with depression or any of that kind of stuff of just finding, um, those little things to cling to. So I think her frame of mind was a good one. And I think it was helpful. And it actually reminds me of a time when I was struggling myself. And so I started keeping a gratitude journal and it was just those little things. I'd write down like three or four little things every, every day that I was grateful for. I think I was just up to my eyeballs in small children and diapers and whatnot. So, you know, being grateful that I had enough diapers for the day or grateful that somebody didn't pee on the couch, you know, those kinds of little things and finding just the little happinesses. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I liked that. And I like that we got to see her journey to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I feel like her care. I mean, the brother did change a lot. I think it also just him. Um, we'll talk that's the next question. There were brother and his relationship with death was an interesting inclusion. Do we <laughs> like where he ended up? But I think that he, she's the one and, and it was her liberation club, her liberation notes. And I do think that she was the one that activated the most change and sought out change within her life. Um, but also as the, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, so the brother and his relationship with death was an interesting inclusion. I, so they, we didn't focus too much on it, but he is the one that had found his mom mm-hmm. in a very, very raw, realistic conversation after you've uh, experienced a, a loved one that's close to you that has died, um, making jokes <laughs> and trying to comfort each other in that way, but also having like him and his friends, they have a deep conversation, but they're also very like, they're joking around making light of certain things, but like, he lets them know that like, I I'm the one that found my mom and I had a situation where I never skipped school, but for some reason I felt like I needed to go home and he goes home and he finds his, was his grandmother or his uh-huh grandmother. So he finds his grandmother and she, he, you know, touches her hand and he realizes that she's not responding to him. And, and, um, so he finds her when she's dead. And then at the end, he even says, is he found his grandfather too. So like he found both of his grandparents, he found his mom and then a very pivotal moment in his, like, after he moves away from his, uh, the country, he does, uh, tries to do a sweet potato oven business that goes in yeah. The convenience stores. Yeah, that's it. But he was supposed to be passing the test of something or whatever. And he misses it because he decides to just randomly go see the, and we haven't really touched too much on the friend that has the ex husband that's dying and that kind of part of their relationship. But we're also really running out of time. So we're not going to touch too much on that. Although (laughs) it is important to note that he stayed with him in his last moments. Um, when nobody else could be, uh, reached and he was there when he died and that caused him to incur a huge amount of debt and he ended up paying it off and everything, but he ends up accidentally going into a funeral. Um, uh, it's not conductor. I almost said director, funeral director certification program. (laughs) program by accident. He just gets pushed into like, there's a crowd of people hurrying into this class and he's supposed to be going to class 302 and he gets pushed past that class into this other one. Doesn't even realize it sits there. And then here's the direct, the person's spiel. And it is like, what the heck? I'm not in the right class. And then realizes where he is. And then he's like, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I am a good person because he's been there in the last moments of many people's lives and it suits him. 
And so he stays and he, I mean, we assume that he becomes a funeral director. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he always, he says more than once throughout the drama that his feet always take him where he needs to be. Because like post the sweet potato fryer failure, he was sitting in a convenience store because he had quit his job at the the convenience headquarters. Right. And so he was just kind of like, how am I going to pay back this debt? And then his friend calls and actually gets him a position managing that very convenience store. And so he just like, he kind of follows his whims yeah. and it, it always seems to land him in the right place. So he's there to comfort people when they're dying. He's there for his next, the next move in his career, that kind of thing that helps him get back on his feet. And so even though he was caught up in the crowd mm-hmm. and got pushed to that other room, you know, he was following his feet. Right. It's not like they picked him up. Right. But, well, and and even so- that the conversation with his friends, he quit his job right before the mom passed away. So he was actually there to be with his dad and, mm-hmm. you know, make him meals and take care of him and be there for him when his mom passed away. So yeah. Until he realized that they would do that to the end of their lives if something didn't change. <laughs> yes. Yes, they would. Have. All right. So back to Mr. Goo. So he, okay. Mr. Goo. Yeah, he, he's definitely one of the most tragic characters in the show. And his journey felt very real, especially in his final scene. Did we like that? So I'm trying to think the final scene where he's fighting. No, so his no. final scene. So he he they have this all out brawl. And, the, and at one of the, his storylines is there's one of the people that's underneath him that actually came to see him and wanted him to come back and kept pestering him to come back. But this guy has a gambling problem. And so he Mm -hmm. keeps stealing the money from the club to pay his gambling debts. So that the last fight that he has is all of these people collecting the gambling debts and it's just this all out fight. And then they end up stealing. No, it's the guy, the guy that came to visit ends up stealing all the money. So that I'm I'm not the guy, not the guy that had the debt, but the guy that, they were collecting. Wasn't he the one that ran off with it? Uh-uh. It was the guy who had the debt who took oh. the money from the club and the money that Mr. Goo was transporting took uh-huh. it all. So he ran off with the money and he ends up trying to call him the voicemail. It go it, it, he's you know turned off his phone or he's disconnected his number and he just kind of tells him you're one of the people that will show up to me now and because he's the one of the reasons he drinks first thing in the morning is because all the people he's ever wronged um kind of haunt him and mm-hmm. you're going to be one of the people that haunt me, but you're, we're good. And you can come back to me whenever you want or whatever. And then he takes his money. He's got tons and tons of money in his apartment. He takes his money and he leaves. He goes and buys himself some, uh, a, some whiskey. I'm pretty sure it's whiskey mm-hmm. um, or a burger. I'm not an expert on alcohol, but it, it was either that or it's a brandy because it's a darker liquid anyway so he does that he finds a uh, he accidentally uh dumps a 501 coin out of his pocket it rolls lands in the the on the grate and he picks that up because it doesn't fall through he picks it up and there's this whole like you'd have to watch the whole analogy with the brother and that like we're all uh one we're all like a coin mm-hmm. Coin and that we build up to make a mountain and the brother thinks, oh no, I wasn't the coin. I'm the mountain. I'm not the coin. (laughs) (laughs) Is he picking himself up from the ground? So he leaves the bottle of alcohol with with somebody who's sitting on the side of the road, a homeless person, and he walks off. He's got his bag of money. So again, his, his ending scene is 
could stand for a lot of things. And a lot of people are probably going to be like, I don't like open ending like that. I wanted to know exactly what happened to him, but I feel like for, for all of the characters and especially for him, it's hard to know what's going to happen, whether even if he went at the end, you see this, him go check himself into a facility, he gets sober. And then you see him happy with her at the very last scene. You still don't know what could happen in the future. So it's almost, it's a little glimpse of like him making a decision, that first step of like, again, I'm going to try to turn away from that. And then I'm not sure what he's going to do with the money. Is he going to pay off the debt to the main boss that he's not on the hook for that and then walk away from any money he has in his life? Or is he stealing all the money and running off (laughs) (laughs) in the country? We don't know, but we do know he is making another change in his life and he's moving in the direction away from where he's been for the last several years and the choices that he's made. At least that's that's the final scene you see him in. He's smiling. He's got the bag of money. He does not have the alcohol. He's got his coin and he's walking away. And then you see her smiling too, almost as if he's heading to her. But again, it is interpretation of, of what does his life have in his life after that? We don't know, but. Right. And that's actually a hopeful way of looking at that because I definitely thought he was taking the money to go pay off the big boss. Yeah. You know, making up because ultimately, I guess he was responsible. And so it was going to come from him and his big boss is his big boss was interesting because he's like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to cut your little friend off if he if this continues to be a problem. Right. But then the boss was like, "Okay, I can tell alcohol is a problem for you. Right. Have you gotten therapy? I'm like, what big mafia boss says to their their underling? Hey, have you been getting therapy, especially in a Korean drama? And I love that. Yeah. But I also, I love that you picked up on that because I missed it, that he picked up that 500 won coin and it was a representation of that metaphor. Right. And I just, he is one of the mountain, but at the same time, that doesn't make him any less because he still belongs in the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I see it as that he's picking himself up off Mm -hmm. the ground and putting down the alcohol and he's then moving forward with his life and he's leaving behind. Again, I feel like he's not running off with the money he's going off to pay the boss so that they're all clean and cut and then walking away from it. Mm -hmm. I would love for him to walk away from it because obviously that life was miserable for him and it wasn't, it wasn't going to go anywhere good in the future. It would just be more of the same, just like the siblings experienced out in the country. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. So the liberation note meeting toward the end discuss, that's all I put. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it had to be included because one of the most pivotal scenes in the drama and somebody listening who hasn't watched it, like this is a pivotal scene. (laughs) One of the most pivotal scenes in the drama is when the director of um, clubs at her work asks to join the club. So Mm -hmm. she's the one that's been pushing. That's her job to make them see that they need to be a part of a club. And then she's like, I would like to join your liberation club because I need (laughs) to be liberated from having to make people join clubs. Like (laughs) about how there's more to it than that. Putting, putting on her smile to this Mm -hmm. funeral. She can't take off the smile because she's always smiling, always forcing herself to look happy for other people. And even at funerals, and they even show later on, they show a scene of Mr. Goo at a, a funeral and he is laughing and joking around. And, and it's kind of an interesting uh, comparison of like inappropriate, but 
lots of people do it. Like you can, you know, it's hard to go to those types of things, but so her inclusion in, it was just such a, like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And like her learning the rules and she's like, oh, that's actually very liberating. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. I use that, but <laughs> that her not having to comfort people and her not, and people not being able to, to give her advice or anything. It was very, um, it was something that she was like, I can really do this. I can actually be a part of this and not have it be a burden, um, or feel like I'm having to put on a show. And so her inclusion in of it was a really pivotal moment for them and the club and everything. But then when we come back around to the last meeting that they show, cause they do decide to keep doing them, which again, kind of lends to the, like, we only get to see a slice of their life. We don't get to see the conclusion or any of that. We just kind of get to see a part of it of that. They realize in this meeting that have they really made a lot of changes? Have they really been liberated? Are they still kind of in the same place? And I feel like a lot of the scenes that you come back to once the kids move to Seoul kind of reiterate some of that. And then there's also those just tiny little scenes of like the brother riding his bike and going through Seoul and being able to commute to his work and not have to be on a train for an hour and a half. And he gets to ride his bike, you know, Mm -hmm. little scenes like that. They make changes, but then in some ways, they're still kind of stuck, especially like the single dad and like, has he really been liberated from all of that? And they come back to the conclusion of like, the main point was to address and, and really, um, say what, what is my problem? What, what am I here for? Why am I here? And then realizing that that's just something you're going to have to keep working on for the rest of your life, that it's not, Oh, I'm going to join a club and everything's going to be okay. I'm going to start writing in a notebook and it's all going to be solved. It's just that I've identified the problem. And now I'm acknowledging that in each part of my life and the decisions that I make kind of thing. And that, Hey, we need to keep this meetings going because we need to support each other. And that's kind of like where the, the last meeting left it for that. Well, and it was kind of fascinating too, because at that point, Mijong has moved on to a completely different company. Right. But this, this club had an effect that probably corporate was kind of halfway hoping would happen, but right. happened organically for them because they actually stayed together. Right. And they became each other's support. And so, and I was also, I was kind of watching their faces and like the, uh, the almost nameless guy who brought them together with the glasses. Yeah. Like he looks more at peace. He doesn't feel like he's really resolved his issues, but he looks more at peace Mm -hmm. and more confident. Single dad is working on it. And I think what we're seeing is that he's speaking up for himself. He doesn't feel like his weakness is not as strong. Mm. And that's an odd way to put it, but it's just like, he's starting to talk things through with older sister instead of just kind of let things happen. Right. Because I nearly thought that they were going to break up in that last scene. And then they didn't. And of course her saying that she loved, you know, she was attached to him because her, her feelings of pity and love and something else were all rolled into one. I'm like, that is not something you build a relationship on. Anyway, that's a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) But, and then Mijong probably made the greatest progress because she, her little moments of positivity that it added up to the five minutes a day. I think that helped her a lot. And then the club, the club director says that she still doesn't, she texts me Jung later after the meeting and says, I still don't feel lovable, Yeah, but she's still trying. Yeah. And so it's just, I liked that it, we got to see their different progresses mm-hmm. and how some of them can see the changes that they've made. Some of them can't and how 
even though they're just incremental changes, it's turning their lives into a more positive direction. Yeah. So I just, I liked that meeting because it was, I think you said in our chat that it was a great metaphor for like the entire drama. Yeah. And it really is. It, it is that they are growing and they are changing and it's just, it's these little tiny steps. That and um, uh, I think this thought and then what are we thinking of the ending? And then just our, uh, what would, would we recommend might be a good way to end it. But I think one of the, the liberation notes, and then just a lot of the different scenes really kind of reminded people, sometimes you just have to love somebody where they're at. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of characters that it just kept coming back to, like, you have to like me, Jung probably should have ran for cover and like ran as far away from Mr. Goo as possible <laughs> in a lot of situations where I'm just like, Oh honey, why, are, why, why are you seeing him? He's in the depths of despair. And why are you trying to have a relationship with him? But that's the thing is she wasn't necessarily trying to have a conventional relationship with him. She just saw him where he was knew as much as he had let her know. I mean, she didn't even know his name until like, <laughs> episode, 15. episode 15, but she just saw him where he was and just kind of loved him for who he was and didn't expect a functional relationship at that moment. Like she wasn't all in and trying to like move in with them and like marry him or she just like, she just saw him when she saw him and, and didn't abandon him once he reached out back to her kind of thing. And even the, the brother and the friend and some of his relationships, he just kind of, they loved him where he was at and he loved them where they, where they were at and just parted ways when they needed to part ways type of thing. And e even this, the oldest sisters, the way that she, when she was talking about the rose and not having the stem and just kind of looking at the relationship for what it was, both of them were just kind of loving each other the best way they could it, at this point in time, will they last? Will, is it, is that enough for relationship? I mean, some, some relationships, that's all they get. So, you know, I, I don't know, but I think that that ran through a lot of it of like, not necessarily trying to change people, but also just loving them where they're at and being there for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that was kind of, that was the whole thing and kind of how having a person in your life can change you. Yeah. That going it alone, I mean, they felt alone, but it feels like every time they had a person in their life, it, it made things, even Chong Hee, I'm trying to think, well, okay, his person was really kind of the Rolls Royce, <laughs> <laughs> but also in the later episodes, he talks to Mr. Gu in his mind and he calls him Hyung. Yeah. And so even though Mr. Gu isn't there, he still has someone to talk to and it changed his trajectory. Yeah. Cause there's a point where I think he's sitting looking out over soul after everything has kind of imploded. And he's like, I'm just, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying to do better. And I think that having people in our lives can help, but also it showed in, I think each of them that, but those people can't do the work for you. And that each person, each sibling or whoever they were focusing on, they had to make the changes themselves. And I do, I, I don't want to, 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 the relationship that Mi Jung had with Mr. Gu and, and the way that they portrayed like alcoholism and, and how he was going to heal from that, all that stuff. I'm not going to comment on whether I think it was a healthy portrayal or any of that. I just think, again, it was just a portrayal of what, um, cause she can't save him. She can't mm -hmm. be his counselor. She can't, you know, uh, you know, he, 
you, you're, you cannot save somebody in that situation and you cannot be their only, uh, life raft type thing. And, and that's where, again, like I say, she wasn't trying to be his full partner or any of that kind of stuff. So I think that she was helping him, but in a way that was healthy for herself. I do. I think there's probably better ways to do and help him. Yeah, probably. But we're just looking at what, you know, what they showed and, and appreciating kind of the story that was told with, with each of them. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's kind of too, this is whether it feels like it or not from the description, it is a very slice of life Mm -hmm. and we're all on journeys. I mean, slice of life does not mean that things stay the same. We're all on journeys. And so it's just seeing the progression from where they started to where they ended. And even for him, like he could not handle a relationship with commitment and she didn't offer it. And I guess in her way, in her own way, that was a way of worshiping him. Mm Mm-hmm was just meeting him where he was rather than demanding more. Right. And she was the exact right person to do that for him. Yeah. All right. So would we recommend? And this is one of those things where, yes, I would 100% recommend it. If this is the kind of drama that you like, do not come to me for a rom-com and think this is going to be something that you love because it is not. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I often say that I don't enjoy, um, dramas that feel like literary fiction which are and lit fic is a lot like uh like when the weather is fine yeah that that's very lit fic it's focused not only on the characters but on kind of tragic things and people oftentimes people just being horrible and getting their comeuppance whereas this one was more uplifting because there was growth there was change and there was this self-awareness that made these characters much more palatable for the most part Mm-hmm. than the ones that I find in the lit fic that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. And so I, I recommend it to people who enjoy slow character-driven dramas, who are looking to be very thoughtful in their own lives and who are not looking for a binge watch, as we have said. Yeah, that and not looking for uh, a bookend. Because again, yeah. that's uh, the biggest thing. And I was, we were both prepared for it. We both kind of finished it up. Uh, it finished airing yesterday and I watched most of 16 last night, but then finished the last 30 minutes today. And so I only had a little bit of time to kind of think about it, but like, I was expecting it to end in a way that it was like, there's, there's no bows and even like a sense of hope and happiness. It, it was there, but it wasn't like, like really driven in and, you know, try Like, I think it would have felt fake to me mm-hmm. if any, if it would have all been like, everybody was happy and they, you know, loved all their jobs and they loved going to, you know, traveling to see their dad all the time. And they loved the new mom. And like, I just, I, there could have definitely been a lot of those things that would have made it feel hopeful and happy and made it being like, Oh, this was a healing drama. And I, I don't even think it was a healing drama either. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not one of those. Um, but I mean, I, even the last couple of scenes, I was still like in agony for some of the characters, but then again, it finished and there is a sense of hope. It is very open ending for interpretation to a lot of it. Again, whether in the romance, like if you're looking for a show about romance, none of the main characters' romances give a, a really satisfying conclusion to them. They're just there together for now. They're together mm-hmm. in the that you know they're going to see each other again, or that you know that that they're going to keep trying, or you know whatever. But there's definitely no uh, uh, concrete ending to any 
of the relationships. But again, it's slice of life. And if you look at life, like there, we're all just keep moving through it. And so things will change and, and that's where it's at. Could there be another season? Probably not. Cause I don't think this writer is that kind mm-hmm. of writer. Um, but you would just, again, get to go in agony through more relationships. <laughs> Maybe well, and I think it would 50, you know? Yeah. And I think it would dilute the impact of the story to have a second season. Oh yeah. No, I, I would definitely recommend this as long as you know, it's a slice of life that leaves you contemplating thinking and maybe being a little bit like, oh, okay. Do I need to be liberated for any, from anything? Would this, uh, whole concept of the couple minutes a day help me? Or you might end it and just be like, okay, that was a satisfying drama. But I I do think that if you are good with this kind of drama, you're going to end up really um, sitting in the space of what the story that they're telling is and and enjoy it. So, Mm -hmm. And I think too that it's, I don't know, if I was to put a label on it, I would say it's a reflective drama, something that really caused you to sit, like you said, sit in it and reflect on yourself as well as on the story. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. So thanks for joining us for this long podcast, this little tiny <laughs> cozy chat. And we'd love to hear um, what your thoughts about this episode are. We, you can reach us on Twitter, on Facebook, or through our Patreon page. The links are in our show notes. We love blogging about Asian dramas, but behind the scenes, we have so much more to say in case this podcast was not a demonstration enough. And we love sharing it with you talking is so much faster than typing. <laughs>